and welcome to episode two of the One World Media podcast. One World Media is a non-profit organization that supports international journalism and has promoted media coverage of global issues for nearly 30 years. In this episode, Ingrid Falk, an independent media consultant and former head of documentaries at Al Jazeera English, chairs a panel on authentic storytelling. Ingrid and panel members Hassan Akkad, Jess Crombie, Ruhai Hamid and Paul Miles discuss the essential elements of developing world stories, along with a Q&A session from the audience. Recorded at the Industry Day, held by One World Media at Channel 4 HQ in London. I'm Ingrid Falk, and until about two months ago was the head of documentaries at Al Jazeera English in Qatar. And so I've spent the last five years commissioning global stories for a global audience. And I'm now an independent exec. Um, Hassan Akkad, you will know. He's very, his face and story <laughs> is very, very well known. Um, a teacher from Damascus, brutally uh, imprisoned by the Assad regime, decided in 2015 to come to Europe together with a million other people. The difference was he recorded his story and then collaborated with Kia Films and the BBC to make this extraordinary series, Exodus, of which the second season, I'll plug, is going out, I think, tonight? There's yeah, episode two? second episode, right. yeah. So we're going to come back to Hassan and talk about telling him telling his own story and the other people in that session. Um, I'm doing this just in order that the AV is queued up. So, uh, <laughs> um, Paul, on my right, is uh, Paul Miles, is the, used to, or is still partly a, an investigative reporter, but actually, in the context of this discussion, he's the head of editorial at a, an organisation called On My Radar, which works with community communities based in the majority world to source stories and for storytelling. And he's going to talk more about that, which is how we work closely with people who are in, in place. Rui, who um, I must confess I've worked with a lot at Al Jazeera, is a, a, an award-winning documentary maker who works a lot in mainstream docs for mainstream <coughs> broadcasters <clears throat> and can speak of some of the challenges that are asked of her often um, by commissioners and how to work around that to retain some sort of authenticity in the storytelling process for mainstream. And then on my left is Jess Crombie, who's the creative director of Save the Children and has pioneered a very interesting project called People in the Pictures. <laughs> And we'll talk about exactly some of the issues that David Lammy and John Snow raised, which is depiction and representation. Now, one thing to say is what we're not going to do really, um, and I beg you to stay for the next session because I understand the commissioners are going to be there, is this isn't about answers to how you get your film made. Um, I no longer am a commissioner and neither of these people, so there are things that we can't answer. What we want to do here is look at some of the practices and some of the challenges that people who are going to tell story, tell other people's stories or work with people to tell stories, whether it is in the global south, the majority world, or whether it is in 
communities within the UK? What are some of the practices, some of the processes that can get, get us products, media, that it has an authenticity? Now, the word authentic storytelling, it's a difficult term. It's not really, you know, authentic means sort of genuine, I suppose, broadly. Actually, what we're trying to do, and what I've been interested in and doing for the last, you know, 10 years, is shift the power base of storytelling. Finding authoritative voices from people who are experts in their own story, whether it is experts being very poor and having awful things done to them, or experts in expert areas of expertise, who somehow get sidelined from the piece or the doc or the story or the report. Authoritative voices, agency rather than victimhood, which isn't about positive stories, it's about solutions and the solutions that, have come, that are available in all these stories. They are there and why we're only ever seeing just the sort of problem layer and ways that we can quite practically, I'm going to hopefully wrap up at the end with a, a few quite practical things for people making docs or digital media or whatever, think about the film language and the grammar that we use as well as the processes that can really challenge these narratives. We were all chatting just beforehand about, it's a bit depressing, I've been doing this for 30 years and we're still having this conversation, but we have to still have it and we do have to have it to, I don't know, are there any commissioning editors in here? We have to have it with the people who are commissioning content. Um, people like John and David are very powerful and hopefully they're going to carry that message on. But we also, I think, have to have it with ourselves. And I think we all, I've, I've made mistakes, we've all done it. I've gone around the world making films about people. No. We should be making films to enable those stories to come from people. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. We don't have all the answers. We have more questions than answers. But um, we'll, and we'll, we'll chat. I'm very happy to take some questions around each theme during the time. So just wave your hand. But I will try and keep it to the sort of four broad themes that we're going to talk about, which is starting off with um, looking at user-generated content, which is actual content coming from the people whose story it is. We're going to go on to working with, sorry, <laughs> that way, <laughs> but, but, but everybody talking about that. We're going to go on to talk about uh, collaboration and meaningful collaboration with organisations and then hear about some of the challenges sort of from pitch to post-production, really, there's a number of decisions that you can make that can really alter the way stories get told. And Jess has got some really interesting responses to some of the work that came up, particularly around those difficult charity issues. Uh, and that's what we're going to do. So, um, I'd like to start off with you, Hassan. I know oh. you get rolled out <laughs> a lot to tell your story. This time, we're going to show a little clip. Okay. I don't know whether you want to talk about the clip beforehand or you just want to show it and talk afterwards. It's up to you. I don't know what clip it is, so can we... Uh, okay, <laughs> all right. I thought you'd sent it. Yeah. Okay, uh, you, uh, I think Keo yeah. sent it. Yeah, um, it's a very moving piece. Of it. Why don't we, we show the clip and talk about it? Okay. What I'll ask is that you don't talk specifically about the um, content of it, but talk from the position that you're in now, which is you're now part of the crew, part of the team making the second series. Okay. So you have a unique insight into people's stories coming yeah. in user-generated content, and then actually it's not that easy to make it work. No, okay, no. can we roll the clip, please? Okay. 
I hope our heads are. that people are living in. Yeah. It's also partly how human they are. Yeah. What were your... How did you feel about your story being told, the, the, the process that you went through, you know, um, for the first... in the first series? Okay, thank you. Um, um, you just said earlier that you moved from moving fi making films about people telling their stories to enable people to tell, to tell their mm. stories through films. And I found that... I s I witnessed that as I was doing my journey to, to from from Turkey to the UK. Uh, I didn't. I I'm just a, like a little background. I'm not a filmmaker. I was an English teacher back home, but I did tell stories for a living. <laughs> I uh, and then I suddenly became the story that I wanted to tell. And um, my advantages were that I was not. It was just me armed with my GoPro. I had no guidelines, no risk assessments. <laughs> no. <laughs> now I know how difficult that is. <laughs> uh, it was just me, literally, and I'm 27. I I can do it. I mean, I can. Uh, I'm. It's. I wasn't worried about my life. Uh, uh, I remember as I was when I was shooting my boat crossing. It's a clip that got, got shortlisted for the best moment on the telly last year. Uh, I remember filming it, and I was on the boat, and I was like filming people on my with me, 
And all, when, we, when we got to the other side, I saw the conflicting image. I saw someone with a, like I saw a camera crew, and um, the, the reporter was saying, so these, these people just showed up. What do they want? Who are they? Why are they here? And I, he didn't bother and come and asking any of us. So these are like the two things that, that, that flashed, like us, the UGC, the people that are, that are doing the journey and wanting to, wanting to tell their stories, and the people of the other side that are coming to, 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 to point out why are people here and to question that, why they are coming. Um, uh, I've, done the whole, I've done the whole journey through Europe for three months, filming everything on, on my camera. Uh, until I, I got to meet the filmmakers from Kia Films, um, and they had the same idea. It was an, it was an, it was a, they pitched that. So you filmed everything first? Yeah, I yeah, thought yeah. it was halfway, right. No, no, no okay, I filmed okay. the whole thing, because, right. because, again, because as, as from the first session, I was, I was, I was disgusted by the, the amount of ignorance online of people saying, oh, why do refugees have smartphones, or why do they, why are they carrying designer bags, or why do they speak English? So I, on, I wanted to normalize myself and the people that I'm traveling with. And I wanted to put a face on the crisis by filming my journey. Little did I know that BBC and, and Kia Film, they had the same idea, which was great, which is going out, handing people smartphones, telling them to, to film their journeys and tell their stories. Uh, well, they didn't have the footage that I had. <laughs> and, we, and we ended up working together and making Exodus 1. And then, so that was, so, I, and then I shifted from being a, contrib a contributor in a documentary to working on the second documentary series, which is which the clip from the second Exodus, uh, as a researcher. And I went out on shoots uh, all over uh, Europe. Uh, what, what I saw like, from, from both sides is that when I, was, when I was doing the journey and people coming to film me, I, I honestly, I just wanted to say fuck off, like leave me alone, I want, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm miserable now, all I want is a camera in my face telling me to tell my story. And I was like, I, I, I didn't want anything to do with a, with a camera in my face. But now that I knew how much change a film could make, the movement that I've created, Exodus 1 created this movement, encouraged people to donate and volunteer and do all of these things, I was like, okay, understandably then, we should film, we should make these films. Uh, the advantages that the Exodus 2 has is that it's no longer because it's no longer just Syria, all right? Because <laughs> there are refugees from the rest of the world. Unfortunately, when you say the word refugee, now people think of Syria. So throughout Exodus 2, you see, and that's like based on because it was a diverse team. It was me, two. It was two Syrian people working on the crew. There was an, two Afghans, and we were like, mate, we're like Syria's been at war for like five years. Afghanistan has been there for four decades. So you get more the Afga the, Af the Afghan the, Af the Afghanistan story, the Sub-Saharan African story, people like that have been fleeing for ages, and uh, it, it worked. Like um, our input worked. Uh, I would be working with uh, with like direct different directors on shoots, and then I would know like I know when they are a little bit pushing to get more, and I'd be like, you may want to just leave it for a mm. bit, you know, you know, because calm down. I mean, they will come next tomorrow and like follow up. Yeah, but it is well. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because it's very rare we get actually straight from the contributor's <laughs> mouth. Um, Coming here, it's stealing not jobs. Easy, though. <laughs> I mean, I don't <laughs> <laughs> um, the, um, the the 
you know, hats off to Keo for working through what must have been mountains of material. Yeah. Because the we had one, for for the second Exodus, we had like one thousand hour of like a thousand hours of rushes for a three-hour series. But it does come... I mean, the, 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 the benefit of that is this extraordinary sort of authenticity. I don't think... You know, this is the, the biggest story of our time yeah. at the moment. I don't think we'd ever seen something that gives such nuanced looks so that, you know, the, the joking, the families, the yeah. kids, the, the upsides, the people who aren't... That's it. This is what we need. I mean, we were talking the first session is like sh filming people crying. And I, I'm completely against that. It bothers me also as a Syrian when I see on the tube, like, uh, advertisements for NHCR, like a little Syrian boy crumbled under a tent in the snow. And I'm like, don't... You, maybe you want to, like, film a family that's having a good time and listening to their playlist on Spotify because it would actually, norm, like, make it more normal and people would relate more. The reason why Exodus 1 was very successful is because us, there was the teacher, the father, the, the daughter, the, the, the couple, and the same in Exodus 2, literally just, like, telling you how is it like back home, why are they fleeing, the, whole, the journey itself, narrating like through the interchange, telling you what's going on, and that's and, it. And the critical there was no voiceover, was, yeah. literally no voiceover at all. There's no like this God voice being like, "Oh, they came here." And like, <laughs> <laughs> well, we're certainly going to come back to commentary because commentary is something that we can work with. Can yes, can please. I ask you a quick question. Sure. Yeah. You said it had this tremendous impact. Yeah. And it's so unusual for television to have an impact. From your point of view, can you tell us what, what this impact was? Because I don't know what impact. I genuinely, after the first exodus, I genuinely received over 2,000 or 2,000 messages on Facebook and Twitter. People, people like, I'm going to volunteer in this camp because I watched your film. Uh, and uh, on Twitter, it was going mad. And working on the second exodus, we were going through all these refugees, refugee camps filming the second exodus. We got amazing access by all the NGOs. We were like, yeah, you're the good guys. You're telling the good story. And also a lot of independent volunteers being like, I was, I was sitting home not knowing what, it, what, what was happening. I was watching the footage on news of like boats arriving in, on Greek islands. But when we started like hearing personal stories is when we, that pushed us, pu pushed us to go out and like volunteer and donate. I mean, that's a very good question, and I, th there might be immediate impact in terms of involvement yeah. and whatever, but I think in terms of the, the issues that were coming up in the last session, it's this idea of an image and this idea of a complex understanding of the world that is going to be the longest and most beneficial impact. Um, and I really do, and, you know, as I was an opposition broadcaster, but hats off to the BBC for doing it. It was really, really good. Now, have any of you, of you others worked specifically with user-generated content? Because it's not always available. It's not even always the best uh, technique for a story. It, you know, it, it suited this perfectly yeah. and was done and it was executed very very well yeah. um, I don't know maybe that leads slightly to it you do quite a lot of user generated yeah well, we the way we we see our work is to sort of go beyond user generated content and rather than sort of grabbing things off Facebook and Twitter and embedding them in your piece we like to work directly with communities um, so in the examples I'm going to give today we've got um, one from Sierra Leone, which is ha um, an example of how we work with communities throughout the whole Ebola crisis. And um, what was interesting about that project for us is that we actually went on a reporting trip in 2012, and rather than 
flying in and reporting and parachuting in and leaving again, we, we went to Sierra Leone and we set up a, a reporter network which we trained in the basics of journalism and we set up um, an audio and SMS hub which was like a tech system which meant that people were using their basic mobile phones which is still what the majority of Sierra Leoneans use, they, they're not on WhatsApp or Facebook. Mm. Um, they could continue reporting stories and sharing insights from some of the most remote or marginalised parts of the country. Um, and so one of the, the I've, I've put two clips, sandwiched two clips into my one minute, but um, and that comes from one of our reporters and it's um, and about her own story. And this is a local reporter. Yes, yes. Yeah. and it's about her own story throughout the crisis. So rather than, I think user-generated content, not always and not in this case, but often tends to imply basically just taking something which mm. has been posted on Twitter and Facebook. Mm. Mm. Whereas our approach is kind of much more proactive in that if we want to reach some of the hardest reach to reach communities in the world, then we need to remove some of the barriers to access and uh, remove some of the barriers to them sharing their story. And those three barriers for us sort of tend, tend to always fall under three Cs. So confidence, which is if you've never dealt with the media before, if you've never shared your story, if you're a young homeless person in London, do, do, you, have, do you ever feel listened to? Um, and that we can overcome through mentoring and encouragement. Capacity, which is um, in the basics of journalism, for example, a lot of people who've never reported on, reported before, but they're living through the Ebola crisis, they don't see themselves as, as journalists who could be reporting for the BBC. So it's about giving basic training and basic skills in the 101 of journalism and the ethics of journalism and mentoring to ensure that they feel um, able to share their story. And um, the last big one is, is connectivity. So a lot of people sharing user-generated content, but there's a whole world out there which is still offline and which is still not, not sharing their views on Twitter, not sharing their views on Facebook. And, and we believe if you can reach, reach those areas and reach beyond, by definition you're going to get stories which aren't, aren't being heard because they're not being tweeted out, they're not coming from the urban centres of these places. And so for that reason actually, um, there's a lot of talk today and we, we, we do a lot of, uh, you know, our projects this year have been in Ghana and Togo and Bangladesh and Nigeria and Sierra Leone, but I've also included a, a clip from the UK today about a project we did with people living with dementia. Um, and uh, I thought that was important because actually when we're talking about authentic storytelling and authenticity, there's also a lot of communities here in the UK who don't feel able to tell their own story and who don't feel listened to and as the previous panel sort of discussed, don't feel that the, the media is, is interested in their story. And the, the example I'll show from, from, from the UK is um, a, a project we did called Dementia Diaries, and it's a clip from a film, and there we worked with people with dementia in the UK who felt like as soon as they're diagnosed with dementia, they're written off. Mm. And of course they're not going to be part of a storytelling project, and of course they're not going to be part of a digital media project. And, it was interesting for us because people with dementia are also underrepresented on online. They're less likely to be sharing on Twitter and Facebook than other groups um, um, because of their condition. So um, for that project, we designed some 3D printed phones, which were as simple as possible to use. They just had one button that say report on them. And then because that generation is familiar with leaving answer phone messages, it, they press that button and it goes straight through to um, 
an, an audio diary line which says, hi, this is Dementia Diaries, please leave your report after the beat. And um, over a year and a half, we got over 2,000 reports from a group of, of 40 people with dementia. And what was very interesting about that is you also get a longitudinal version of the story. You get them reporting in real time, in their own words, and in their own time, you know, when they're feeling particularly delighted or frustrated or angry about something, they, they can press that button then and you really capture the, the anger or the frustration of that moment. Mm. So. Fantastic. Let's, let's see the clips and then have a few questions. Yeah. Hello, this is Radar's voice report line. To record your report, please wait for the beat and then leave a message. Thanks. Hi everybody, this is Agnes calling from Scotland. I was feeling that there was something not right, but I was too frightened to say to my consultant or to anyone unexperiencing this in case they would, I would be classified as mad. Hard to explain. It's like going, trying to go through a brick wall. My name is Mama B. Jano. The story I wish to tell is my own. It's about how I lost my father during the crisis and my journey to find his grief. It strikes me that one of the resources you need with this kind of very local storytelling, mm -hmm. even in collaboration, is time. Mm -hmm. And time is something a lot of broadcasters don't pay for. <laughs> How do you manage that? Yeah, I think my, my kind of response to that is that I think that the, um, this type of storytelling, this approach, does, does work a lot better for, um, uh, as I said, longitudinal studies. Mm. So um, I don't know, it could be that the, uh, someone's recovery from addiction or something mm. like that isn't a, it isn't a quick thing. It's, it's, some, it's a story which will be told over the course of a year. Or, for example, uh, a crisis which is going on for a long period of time, like the refugee crisis or the Ebola crisis, which are going to continue to deserve coverage. So if there were some floods tonight in the north of England, then it was going to be a one-day story, and you know there'd be a piece on Channel 4 News tonight, and then move on tomorrow. And we you've used Channel 4, I think I've used quite a lot of your pieces, is that right? Where do you outlet these? We, we do, um, so we, we've worked with a film, we're doing a half hour film for the BBC at the moment and um, cha Channel 4 News, the, the Metro Diaries film was, uh, that was on The Guardian um, and the Sierra Leone films was part of a, a, a web doc of eight films actually from Sierra Leone about life after the Ebola crisis which went out in um, six different countries around Europe and including the Channel 4 News in, in the UK. So with these sorts of projects, coming back to a question that was raised in the previous session, um, both Ebola and dementia are big issues, well Ebola and all healthy, they're big issues, they're quite tough issues. Mm -hmm. Are you finding opportunities for sort of local solutions within those in your storytelling? D does that happen or is that 
harder. I mean, on the Ebola question, it was interesting because very few African voices talking about the Ebola issue mm -hmm. in media. I know we searched high and low to find docs, long feature docs that were not just the sort of parachuting in Westerners. So you've got the local storyteller. Mm -hmm. She's telling her story. Is there, did you find it was, uh, th there were any opportunities to look for sort of local agency in, in solutions as well? Yeah, I think, I mean, the, what's so exciting about um, about this approach for us, and this taps into your previous question about money as well, is that we set up this network in 2012, and they were providing us stories remotely using SMS and audio throughout the whole Ebola crisis, BBC World Service, Channel 4, um, actually most major sort of news outlets here in the UK. And um, when we went to make the films, what, what you get by having locally ingrained reporters that you've trained and have built trust within their communities over the years are access and authenticity to solutions that you wouldn't otherwise find. So one of the films in the Back in Touch web doc was, um, was from Moa Wharf, which is one of the one of the worst slums in Freetown, and it was about um, a man called Gaddafi and his gang of Tripoli boys, who were a, who were a gang who were very poorly seen within the slum community beforehand. But seven of their members had caught Ebola, so they'd mobilised their gang network to um, go and pound the streets and to go and educate people about Ebola and to report people who maybe had the symptoms. And so, you know. And we, we spent a couple of days filming with them, and I think that's the type of access and the type of solutions and the, the type of stories which I'd have never found if I went on my own as a kind of Western reporter. So you've dug in, you've spent a long time, you've committed, you're obviously very prescient as well. You've enabled, plus you're working in collaboration. One interesting thing I noticed, and this is something, it's a bugbear of mine, but it might just be from my Al Jazeera days, is your contributor spoke English. Was that her choice or your choice? <laughs> Uh, Mariamma, the, um, it was, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, she, she spoke good English anyway, so uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the contributors in those, um, in those Sierra Leone films spoke Creole as right. well, which is okay. a, kind of, a kind of mix. This um, is, this is a, sorry, I'm not meaning to yeah. put you in a difficult situation, but this is, you know, this is where power matters. You know, I speak passable touristy French, but I wouldn't do this in French, right? Mm. I really wouldn't. If I wouldn't answer any questions on anything significant in French. I would speak in the language in which I can best express myself. And that gives me power within my own story. So this is something that, you know, I think Kia yeah. was very sensitive to. It's, it's, sorry, I didn't mean no, to point no, no, a finger. No, no. And there are times when absolutely it's fine for people to speak English. But it should never be at our convenience. It should be towards the most authentic telling, their telling of their story. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I really like about this is there's no bridge character, right? Mm -hmm. It is both of these have got, yeah. we're not using either a formal presenter or an informal presenter. Um, well, by the way, I'm not saying that these are bad things. I'm saying they come with a, they come with a responsibility. So mm -hmm. do you want to... I was just going to say one challenge in terms of time, and this is, you know, honest reflection as well. A hard, you know, a hard thing has been that um, this year we, we we've been working with a, a woman called Brigitte on a story about she lived in a kind of in servitude in Ghana and Togo, and she managed to um, escape at the age of seven after a TV report was filmed. And we made making a film for for the BBC, which is kind of her life story, and we've trained her as a reporter to go and 
report back in the communities about what this practice is that changed the course of our life and um, why people believe in it, what the elders think. Um, and what, what's, what's been hard with that is that we've, you know, she's been such a key player in the story, she's such a key narrator in the story, and uh, we invited her over to London to be part of the edit because, mm. it, you know, that's, for, for me, that was a, a brave step because, you know, previously, you can get all the content in with people with dementia. They submitted all their audio reports. But you're making the decisions. Well, no, no, I'd ring yeah. them and, say, and we'd say, this is what the project is, this is how we've defined the project, here are your aims, and we'd have lots of workshops where they'd share their general aims. And I might check with them before, but I'd sort of gain their trust, and they were like, yeah, go on, you, mm -hmm. you, know, mm. you, you do whatever you need to do. And, um, and, and they, you know, they put that trust in me as, as, as someone who's used to pitching. Whereas, whereas with this story, um, I'm being challenged a lot more and the crying was interesting that you mentioned because there's a there's a scene where she's reunited with her mother, um, and they're crying and they're really physical and she's she's like I don't yeah you know, I don't really want to I don't really want to include that because mm. it's a really intimate scene with my mum and you're like well that's the best scene that is a scene <laughs> well you're like that is a scene where it's having a human connection you see mm. the kind of affection and the emotion and you know and, and having those discussions and actually that's um, that that's something which is. Uh, in, in negotiation still, but no, we, we, we've just we've just started. We kind of made a taste, and we're starting the edit soon. But I think that that's um, something which you know, which is worth being kind of like brave and honest about. Is and we've talked about this. Is that it? It's not going to be an easy. It's not going to be an easy process sitting with your. You know, she might just say, "I've got a double chin in that in that mm. image." Can we not use it? And you're like, completely. You know. But um, that that's not easy either. But at, at the end of the day, this is you know, this is a practice which has shaped the whole course of her life and um, which she's wanted to raise awareness about her whole life and you know you have to it was like you were saying in terms of th th this is going to be her number one Google hit for the, for the next 10 20 years you know and this is going to be you know hopefully the number one hit when you search Trucosi on the internet which is the name of the practice and stuff and so of course she wants to get it right and of course she wants to kind of make sure that her her words are, are used correctly. It's but a really interesting point, actually, this duty of care to contributors who are not necessarily used to the kind of mass media that perhaps contributors in Western Europe might be used to, where the soundbite, I mean, if you work in the US, people give soundbites, like kids mm. give soundbites. They, they, it's part of their media literacy, whereas actually you're working in places with very disempowered people. Our jobs are to kind of facilitate them to give those stories up somehow um, and yet protect them as well. It's a really interesting dilemma. Although having said that, I mean, the kind of work that I do making films in lots of um, countries outside of the Western world, mm. I actually find that there are people who are desperate to tell their stories yeah. and they're yeah. there and they want to speak and you mm. just put the camera there and you have floods of people coming towards you because they're so desperate to be heard. Mm. So I think it's about how you approach it. You well, know? this and leads very nicely. Let's cue up one of your, because Rui really is in a very difficult position and I've known her, you know, her work for a long time and there was certainly, well you can talk more about, there was more opportunity in a way a decade or so ago to do things, uh, whereas now Rui get, gets asked a lot to do presenter-led uh, docs. So here's an interesting example which you can then sp speak to. Okay, should we, should show we it cue, first, the, yeah. cue the clip? The politician is the reality of this country, it's the way this country was born, it's in these people. You, you can't know Pakistan unless you know a politician. 
I'm on my way to meet people who experienced it firsthand. Husband and wife, Mohammed Youssef and Iqbal Bibi, whose experiences are typical of many here. As Muslims, they had to leave their homes in eastern Punjab. Mohammed was already a young man, but Iqbal Bibi was just 13. It took them 70 days to walk 100 miles for safety. Hearing Iqbal Bibi and Mohammed's story makes me realize that my grandparents were spared simply by chance because they already lived in what became Pakistani Punjab. Talk us through your decisions around that scene. I mean, the reason I chose this clip is for lots and lots of reasons, because it raises issues on lots of different levels. The first thing is, as you said, that um, 10 years ago, I would make films that were without any presenters. I, I grew up in the community programs unit of the BBC, which was all about giving access to people in Britain, where we gave them cameras, trained them how to use the cameras, to learn the language, the grammar of filmmaking, so that they could tell their stories in their own words, control the camera as well. And th there was a trend, so broadcasters go through trends. This was 10, 15 years ago, it was normal. And then reality TV took over, where the ordinary person got the access to television in different ways. And I think it took away something from that so-called authentic voice, because suddenly it began to be mediated by producers, bands of producers controlling those cameras and what they see of those people's lives. Um, when it comes to filming, you know, something like this series, which is called Dangerous Borders, which just went out this summer about partition, I chose it because it was a presenter, but it was a certain kind of presenter, a presenter who actually had something at stake in the story. He, he had an understanding of the culture the sensibilities. Um, and you see it, it's in subtle ways. I mean, I don't know if any of you would have noticed that, but as Adnan walks in, he goes in and he greets the old couple. He instinctively knows how to greet that old couple, to allow them to uh, bring him in by tapping his head and, you know, blessing him as such. Um, 
he just didn't, I didn't, I as the director didn't need to tell him that because he knows, because he's got grandparents, he's got uncles and aunties, mothers and fathers that he would respond to in that <coughs> way. So it's just a little, it's mm. a subtlety of how you change that narrative mm. in those kind of forms. Um, and this is the kind of real world that a lot of us are working in, which is, you know, while we have amazing um, opportunities with some of the kind of story toileting we've talked about, a lot of the mainstream doc commissioners are wanting either a bridge character or a way into something which I have a huge problem mm. with, but with, you've got to work around it. You've got to make a lot of decisions from right at the beginning, how you're pitching <coughs> it, all the way through to your yeah. edit. But I think, you know, it, it's a com complicated process, really, mm. and uh, I don't think it's all wrong. Mm. Um, there are different types of films of that have to be made. And, uh, you know, whilst Exodus was amazing, as you said, it was a unique thing. And the thing about, uh, you know, Exodus and your stuff is that thing of being able to be with people for a long <coughs> period of time. Now, most mm. television programs doesn't, don't have the budget, means, etc., to do that. So every now and then when you have this sort of thing, it's fantastic. And whenever I have the opportunity to spend more than three weeks with characters, I know that I get the real stuff. I cannot deny it. When I go in for those 10-day shoots with presenters, which quite often we have all sorts of limitations whereby the presenter is only available to us for 10 days. But to get the right, you still can get the good story because mm. it means that you have to work damn hard to find the right stories that that presenter is then going to be exposed to. So you do your research, you find your characters, you spend weeks and weeks really being robust about the type of voices that you're going to give access to so that your presenter is then exposed to them and can have that visceral journey in exploring the issues that lie in that ca character's lives. So I, I don't think it's impossible for mainstream exactly. television mm. you know, to do that. And you've raised another interesting point which is by saying we want to hear authoritative voices from people who are experts in their own stories, we're not saying that the journalism has to go by the wayside. We still have to do the research, the fact-checking, the compliance, the protection, you know, pages and pages and pages of fact-checking. Somebody says, oh, this happened to me. Of course we have to check it. But it doesn't have to always be on the front end, it can be in the background. And I think, I mean, I've worked with Rui on very different films mm. where um, the, the whole point is to also tell a story being very sensitive to local context. And that's where um, at the end of the Lammy uh, John Snow um, session, Lammy was mentioning about, well, we're all trying to do good, but let's not do any damage. And actually, that was how I was going to end my session, which is, we're all well-intentioned. We're going out there to do good things. Let's not just do a lot of harm unintentionally. And that harm is in the longer narrative. Mm -hmm. So... And it takes, a, I think it takes a lot of work, a duty of care, as you were saying, you know, you're going to people's worlds and their lives, and their real lives. We go in there for the two weeks, five weeks, six weeks, whatever it is, and we walk away, but we leave behind people whose lives continue. Mm -hmm. And so the thing is, how do we ensure that we safeguard their lives, not only by reporting their lives truthfully, um, you know, when I go out to make a film, my 
the, the voice at the back of my head is constantly saying, seek the truth, find the truth from that character's story and tell it in the best way possible and represent them in the best way possible once you're in the edit as well. Because a lot of the filmmaking is made in the edit, which is when all the execs from the BBC or Channel 4, everybody starts getting in there, controlling it because they have an idea of what they think this film is. And that's where the filmmaker yeah. has to really stay true to what they experience on the ground and this is something that I will do over and over again is fight to maintain what the truth of the story was and it's not always easy mm -hmm. and I don't think it's always in the an the answer doesn't always lie in oh let's have lots of black and Asian commissioning editors mm -hmm. because I'm sorry to say a lot of black and Asian commissioning <coughs> editors once they get into those positions <laughs> suddenly become coerced by the narrative that their bosses are putting th through so they start becoming I mean I hate to use this word but they do become the Uncle Sam's of those people at the top because they think I've got a job I've got to deliver this to this person this is what they've decided this series is about so I think you have to constantly fight to find and make sure that you represent that truth just to be fair to those contributors who gave hours of their time to you mm. to come back with a film mm. no that relationship of well you've you've raised it. We're going to segue to Jess, you've been very quiet, um, which is, Jess works in a very different world. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's very much the world that, that they were talking about previously, which is a world where there are very real and really awful things going on, and the charitable sector has to raise money. So why don't you talk a little bit about the clip before we show issue sure. and how you tussle with that? Yeah, so um, I often describe my job is trying to do is to move two parts of, uh, to create a nice Venn diagram that's ultimately completely, completely one circle. And, um, and sometimes I achieve that very well and sometimes not very well at all. Um, and, on, and what is in each of those circles are the truth of the situation that's happening to the people that we work with. I work with Save the Children, we work in 120 countries. And what's on the other side is the need to raise money to, um, to pay for the programmes that we promised to deliver in those 120 countries. And what I'm trying to do on this side is create agency and empower people. And I'll talk a bit about a piece of research and some really pioneering work that my team and myself have been doing. Um, but at the same time, I have to raise lots of money. And, and in this circle, are lots of fundraisers with very, very high targets to hit and lots and lots of nervousness about changing what works um, in, their, in their views. Um, and so um, what I wanted to show a clip of was um, DRTV, which is the industry term for direct response television, which these one and a half minute ads that I'm sure we probably have a room full of people who who hate them. Um, I don't love them myself, but they, um, they are part of what we do at NGOs. Um, DRTV ads are, um, are one and a half minute ads. They are a very complicated um, way of, well, they're a very simple way of telling very complicated stories. Um, and what we're trying to do is move the marker, the DRTV, so that we create agency, but we also raise money. And so what I'm going to show is a clip from a DRTV ad where we started to attempt to do that. Now, we work with some of, this clip is a bit distressing, we work with some of the most um, vulnerable children in the world. And, um, and what you often see of those children is them with very passive, um, with no agency at all, mm -hmm. and um, no potential for empowerment. And what we're trying to do is show the, the very uh, challenging reality of what is those children are going through, but also some agency as well. You can judge whether or not you think we've managed to do that at all. Thanks. 
child is malnourished. He has a, a, an acute severe malnutrition. He's sick, but he can be his life can be saved if we can do something for these children. It's a, a huge challenge in this hospital where we are lacking quite a lot of things to manage such cases. Over the next four years, we're working to radically reduce deaths in newborns and the under fives by providing a package of essential health care so that children like Tattoo can have a happy and healthy future. So for those of you not in the NGO world, this probably looks just like every other DRTV ad, but it has one major difference, which is that the child is speaking for himself. And I bet you've never seen an extremely malnourished child on a DRTV ad speaking for themselves. So you've still got the voiceover, mm -hmm. you've still got the expert witness, but what you have is the child speaking for themselves. And I think um, in, the, in the world of charity fundraising, the dial moves very, very, very slowly. <laughs> and, um, and so if you move the dial from a what we've managed to do over the last few years is move the dial from a parade of context-free, um, story-free, suffering children, you don't know what country they're from, you don't know what their name is, you don't know who they are, to a place where we're making these sort of little mini-docs about children in the places we work. Now, there's loads and loads of other work that we do which goes much, much further and is much more about agency and empowerment. But I wanted to show this clip because it's, I feel like it's important to recognise that um, this Venn diagram is very real um, in our lives. It is absolutely a standout charity film. I don't think I've seen any charity films where we actually hear from the people around whom this is. So it's a fantastic start. I think the... Um, and a start is well. Well, it is a start. <laughs> yeah, and actually all of us, although I said we've been, I've been talking about this stuff since the 80s, actually we are all... Sorry, do you want to chip in here? Yes. Um, two questions really for the two members of the panel. Anyone? Um, the first thing was, uh, in all your travels, particularly in the African continent, are you um, of Nigerian heritage? Are you finding, because this is what I'm finding, that um, the locals, because you said about, you know, giving the locals the, you know, the power and all of that, but are you finding that they're becoming increasingly distrusted of the Western journalists for that same reason of, of, of victimhood portrayal? Because that's what I find within my communities and the people that choose to work with the Western um, journalists or whatever they want to call them are even distrusted as well. And, almost accused of selling out and they really want to be careful what they say or you know they would twist it and make us look like you know negative you know in a negative light so i wanted to ask what what do you experience that and the other point you made about you know tell their stories and tell it in the best way possible but who has the power because mm. if the filmmaker says and you know and i'm so interested in that point you made about you know even if african or asian people make it to the place of power or maybe near power and having to play Uncle Sam. I think that's a real issue there. But you know, what's the solution to that then? Because you know, as you say, they they, they might be black or Asian and have made it to a place of power, but they want to keep their, their jobs. So who is at that cutting table making us keep that story truthful but you know um, not selling up essentially? Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, that is the big challenge, is those broadcasters need to change. They talk about diversity all the time. I've been on so many diversity-type meetings and chats and things, and I'm sick of them, personally. I'm sick of those kind of things. And I think there isn't enough of a commitment, actually, to make that change. They want to reach targets, you know. And what television has done of late is that you'll see lots and lots of black and Asian faces on television mm. fronting the camera. There's loads of young presenters who are now black and Asian, and it's great. It's a start. But actually, it's about behind the camera as well, who's behind the camera and who's mediating that kind of trust between people. Uh, you know, so when I go out there, whether it be, uh, I'm of Tanzanian origin, so, and I've lived in Africa in lots of different places, so I know different African countries. I also know Asia because I have a heritage in Asia. And so I think there is a sensibility that you bring which you've grown up with. And I think they need more people behind the cameras. And I don't know, you know, it is that thing, it's, it's a kind of an odd thing because I, I have said that those commissioning editors don't necessarily make a change because they are controlled in a sense. So I think it's, there's, yeah. Can, can I just, can I just say that what, but I have to say that, so what in the, I, I worked in advertising for 10 years, I worked in the charity sector for 10 years, and what I have noticed in the 10 years that I've been traveling around, less so now, uh, but gathering content, is the amount, is the awareness that people have of the power of their own agency and power to tell their own story. And that distrust is a marker of that. But that is a brilliant opportunity, because what you have, what you have in that opportunity is to be able to have a conversation with someone and say to them, yeah, um, your words do get twisted, you do get misrepresented. What story do you want to tell? How do you want to tell that story? Um, let's work together in a collaborative way to do that. And I think that's I suppose what I don't see the NGO sector doing, which I, mean, I haven't had a chance to talk about this, but what I'm trying to do with this research I'm doing and bringing the NGO sector together is to recognise the potential and possibility of that opportunity to tell more powerful stories to achieve greater change in their sector. And I don't see, and that we are making some inroads into that, but I don't see it being adopted wholesale because there is a very, very resistant status quo, yeah. which you talked about with the commissioning editors, which I see in the NGO sector. I think also when we start our storytelling process, a big way of kind of gaining trust is by starting with this training and starting with these workshops and saying, these are your stories. And actually that's quite scary as a journalist as well. We did, did something on the, um, on the garment industry this year, led by um, garment factory workers from Bangladesh. So we did a workshop with 80 of them. And actually to start and to do all these workshops and to do all these trainings and, you know, half the way into the trip, almost or sort of you know 10 days into the trip we hadn't really filmed anything yet we didn't have our story yet because that's where the process started it's quite scary because typically when i was just doing documentaries for channel 4 before you kind of do all your desk research and you find three characters which you think <coughs> represent you know a broad picture and but i think um by by tra by training and collaborating actually that's where you that's where you win the trust. You say this is your story. And, and I, think that, I think that one of the things you alluded to is there is this wake of distrust that happens in the, in, the, in, the, in the trails of bad practice. I have to say, I've come across it, and it is heartbreaking. People have been abused by television. And that's happened, by the way, in the UK as well. Um, and that very voyeuristic, kind of slightly smarmy, us-looking-at-them style that's, I think, crept into quite a lot of entertainment television, I think is incredibly damaging for that. I personally have not found that in particularly, obviously we, we've been working with filmmakers largely in the majority world, not so much in, in Europe, um, 
actually there is still a lot of enthusiasm for storytelling. It, you know, I commissioned a series called My Nigeria because I was so sick of Nigerians being scammers, corrupt, Boko Haram, you know, Nile Delta kidnappers. Actually, you know, one in five Africans lives in Nigeria. They're not all doing that. And it was a fantastic hit in Nigeria, <laughs> apart from in the, the rest of Africa, because it was about ordinary people. I can't speak to the the power of UK commissioners, mm. but I suspect they're going to get tripped up by the digital world because these stories are out yeah. there. People are, we live in such a complicated world, we need to understand nuance. We don't, you know, it's not just this group here, but audiences, I think, are being done a bit of a disservice mm -hmm. by this very old-fashioned kind of approach. Actually, they're really interested in your stories and your stories and your, your stories. And I think that's the digital world. Sorry, there was a question here. Um, I mean, it's kind of disingenuous because I work with Hassan on Exodus. Oh, sorry. Um, I work with Hassan on Exodus, um, so it's slightly disingenuous. But what was it when Daisy, our researcher, came up to you in Calais that made you say yes and you would be filmed? And then what was it that made you give us your material, which, you know, as bottom line, I tell you now, you could have sold for quite a lot of money. <laughs> of course, I wouldn't tell you that before. But what, what was it? Didn't make any money. <laughs> But what was it that made you say yes? Okay, so before I say that, I wanted to make a comment about distrust. Sorry, I, I um, uh, so distrust. So it's not distrust. So yeah, you get distrusted. No. So so I I come so from Syria, for example, is the most well documented crisis in the world. There isn't a single thing that happened in Syria that hasn't been filmed and put online, but nothing happened. So people have given up. They've had this. Um, fatigue and they like nothing's going to change why talk to the media why make a film or why go on tv and describe what's going on because nothing's going to change uh, it i think it falls back to the to the person to the people because i individually i believe in change i haven't lost that um, i haven't i mean i still have that hope um, that something will happen so it fell back on me understanding the consequences of making that decision because uh, because i went i went on a bbc <laughs> like dissing Shah al-Assad and saying all those things. My dad got locked up by the Secret Service in Syria, but I knew that would happen. And he was like fine with it. He was like, okay, do it. So people have to, people have to be, but I'm, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm, well, I'm, I'm educated or whatever, but I know, I mean, I've, I, I'm online, well, I, I read, I, I know, but a lot of my friends that I went to school with don't know that thing. They don't know the consequences of appearing on television in the Western world. Um, what made me give you my footage for free and not making any money is... <laughs> I'm really not making any money! <laughs> yeah, is, is, is basically, so I, my whole my idea was, film the, uh, again, driven out by the ignorance about the refugee crisis, film the whole thing, put it on YouTube, let people watch it. <clears throat> I met Daisy, the researcher in Calais, and uh, she explained, well, like, this is, this is what we're making, but it's not going to be on YouTube, it's going to be on BBC and Canal Plus, a bigger platform, and also, not just that, I would I watched the whole film before I went out. I was offered to see a therapist because I was, I mean, because even when you are, the duty of care that we were talking about, now I saw in Exodus 2, you can't just like put a camera on someone that has gone through shit in their lives and be like, tell me their story, all right, bye. Um, that was incredible that I was given that, I mean, and now we've offered it to contributors in Exodus 2. 
and uh, it's just it, it, they had the same vision, they had the same idea. I didn't make it. I didn't do it for the money. They all what they want. I mean, they wanted to, to to put a face on the crisis. And instead of one face, they put six faces. And yeah, I mean, they yeah. won me. Question here. Sorry, then you. Do I talk too quick? <laughs> you talk just. Thanks. I'd like to pick up what, what Jess was talking about. I think NGO storytelling, I mean, it, it's really important, and there are a few NGO people in the world, in the room, so it'd be interesting to see what they say. So you're saying that the NGO community is resistant to change. I think we need to unpick that a bit. There's a lot of people in the NGO world who want to tell stories in different ways, mainly involved in the media and comm side of things. Um, there's the fundraising people that are resistant. Now, I mean, I think what you showed us is fantastic, and I'd like to... SAVE is hugely influential. It's the biggest international NGO in the UK by a long way. It's bigger than Oxfam. For the last, perhaps, decade, SAVE uh, was doing the... was a bad example to the sector, and probably before you arrived. And the, there were others who were trying to make changes. And because SAVE was doing it one way and raising a lot of money, they felt they had to join in. So I'd like to see you use the leverage to make a lot of noise about this and show the sector. I, I didn't know you were doing this. Uh, and, and so I'm quite Are interested... You yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, yeah. I run IBT, the International Broadcasting Trust. So I'm interested in knowing how you persuaded the fundraising team to go along with this, and also whether this ad raised more money or less money than the equivalent ad that they would have wanted to run previously. So, lots of questions there. So, um, about, um, I have been at SAVE for um, a long time, I've been there for seven years, and what we, um, about four years ago, I persuaded SAVE to do a piece of research, which is this piece of research, this is the summary document, it's called The People in the Pictures, it's available on our website, just Google SAVE Children, The People in the Pictures, <coughs> there's a great big fat version, um, and what this is, is the first piece of research ever. I didn't realise that at the time, actually, when I asked them to commission it. I just thought it would be something really interesting for us to do, where we take the content that we've created back to the people who feature in that content. Because unlike a filmmaker, we, are, we, we aren't dipping in and dipping out. I mean, I am, but the programmatic teams we work with are there all the time. Um, and so we have an opportunity to go back to people and say, we made this DRTV ad about you, or we made this social post about your story, or we did X, Y, and Z. What do you think about A, the process of sharing your story with us and what could we do better and B, your later portrayal and what would you do differently or what could we do better? Um, and I persuaded them to do that mostly because we were being very heavily criticised for the DRTV ads that we were running, which I had a personal issue with. But um, and um, and um, I wanted and I felt that the only way we could really ever go out and defend ourselves or not or change what we're doing um, is to find out from the people who actually feature in it what they think. Because otherwise, it's just a circular argument between pro fundraising people who think it's the right thing to do and largely programmatic people who think it's the wrong thing to do and we just kind of have this endless round and round debate in the organisation, it's just pointless. So um, what we found was low in this, it was a two year piece of research, <coughs> we found 
Um, lots of things, processes we were doing really, really well. We found areas that we were not doing very well in, and and the two, the two, and then what we've come up with is a series of recommendations to change the process by which we gather stories. And I think what I was also trying to do with this research was move the argument from the, the whole entire argument rests in portrayal. It's always about how do people look in the finished product, but actually the agency lies in the process of telling your story. And so I wanted to move the debate from just process into process and portrayal, and um, sorry, just portrayal into process and portrayal. And the um, and we found there were two major areas where we were not doing very well at all, um, and I suspect that no one is doing very well. In fact, I know now because I've convened a working group of all the comms and fundraising directors across the sector to start talking about how we can do this better as a group. Um, and um, they were consent. Um, people just didn't really know what they were signing up to. They knew, in to, and depending on who they were and where their contact was and how much media awareness they had, they had varying degrees, but they didn't know en enough, and that's important uh, you know, to make it best practice. And, um, and that was a scary thing for us to admit publicly and go out and say, but it's really important to say it, because if, like, you're right, we're big and hairy in the sector, and if we don't say it, who's going to? Um, and the other thing that we weren't doing very well was we weren't spending enough time getting stories. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting you made this point about time, because that, and all of us who go out and get stories know that that's what you need to do. But being able to do it and being facilitated to do it and giving yourself the finances to do it is another matter. But actually, when you have the time to gather stories, you get much more powerful stories. Mm -hmm. But also, your process is way, way, way better. So. Um, I persuaded the fundraisers to, and I haven't persuaded all the fundraisers, and there's loads of, um, the, you know, there's still content that goes out the door that I, you know, I've got some of my team sitting back there and that we look at and we feel really upset about going out the door. Um, but we um, but we also are aware, you know, I'm very, very sympathetic to our fundraising division for the huge targets that they have to reach and the programmatic pressure that they are under to deliver that in a very, in, a, in an increasingly challenging and changing marketplace. Um, I suppose the main the main way that we are all coming together, it's not like I'm persuading mean fundraisers to do something, you know, we are a, an organisation working together in partnership, um, is, that, is that there is a, dec a decrease in trust from the public to NGOs and how they spend their money because we are not very um, transparent in terms of what we're not transparent enough in terms of what we do. And actually, if we tell stories in a more authentic um, or in a more real um, way, not with loads of voice of God voiceovers, but from the voices of the people that we work with, um, we can increase authenticity. And ultimately, that's how I kind of I come at it from an ethics point of view. There's other people in the organisation coming at it from other points of view, which are more economic, but ultimately, we're sort of heading in the right direction but it's a really that's what I think my point is it's a really it's not going to be a fast journey and there are and there are NGOs Oxfam is actually bigger than us financially but there are NGOs who not globally but in the UK there are NGOs who've tried to like Oxfam who've tried to do campaigns which are specifically about changing um opinion and awareness and they've absolutely bombed in terms of raising any money and action and awareness at all so um so that's why this Venn diagram is so difficult <coughs> to achieve but i think if you we have to be really committed to achieving it and so that's i feel mm -hmm. like the first step and you were absolutely right there are loads and loads of ngos and loads of people working in ngos who want to change this as well uh, loads it's, it's it's a non-stop question over there is this to jess as well um, yeah, kind of. I can kind of open it up. I can shut up. No, no it's no, interesting. No, that's great. Um, because my questions were very similar to yours, actually. Um, the NGO that I work for is actually just starting again with DRTV. 
Uh, so it was really interesting to see that. And actually, uh, the research that you were speaking about has actually been quite influential, and there are leaders in the organisation who have seen it and are now very interested. So it's really great to hear about that research and also in the previous session hear about changes at Comet Relief. So I think there is definitely some momentum sort of happening there. First of all, I wanted to like push you again on the results, though, of oh, that, sorry, of that um, advert, because obviously there is a bottom line, and that's what yeah. sort of fundraising so, so over the last leads. Five years, we've released. Um, what we've done is is a, we've got a series of DRTB ads that we run, and we, we're talking only about DRTB. And obviously, DRTB is a slice of like hundreds and hundreds of pieces of communication that go out the door every year. Um, but I guess it's the most extreme slice, which is why it gets debated so much. But um, we um, we run uh, we've actually run a, a cohort of about 42 DRTV ads in any one time. We're not running all of them at the same time, but we're running them at any one time. Um, it's a choice of those 42. And what we do is produce around um, six or seven DRTV ads a year, and around two or three of them are what we call test ads, and they are ads which are completely which are designed to do something totally different from the from the kind of um, uh, most basic form of ad that works. Um, I always say that because it's so, uh, yeah, because there's lots of sort of myth around what works, what doesn't work in fundraising and charities. But, um, but the, um, and so we release, and some of them absolutely uh, bomb without, or disappear without all trace. And we test, we test them fully, you know, we still put the same amount of media spend behind us. So when they bomb, it's a really expensive experiment. Um, and, uh, and some of them do really well. So, and I'd like this one with the child speaking for themselves because that child is suffering very um, significantly. Um, uh, and that was, and, and we, we do lots of very uh, sophisticated testing. Um, this, these ads actually do very well, whereas an ad where um, we had um, uh, children, uh, you were talking about why don't we show families, why don't NGOs show families having fun, so an ad which did that, it was about humanising a child, and about a child telling their own story and showing how empowered they were and showing how feisty they were, absolutely and totally bombed. Um, it's really, it was like, it's so depressing when you do this, it's so unbelievably depressing. And then you do these focus groups with people and they look at pictures and say things like, there's like a child wearing rags living beside a railway track and they go, and the child's got beads around their neck and they go, yeah, that child looks all right. It's got beads around its yeah. neck. It's got jewellery. It must be all right. And they say these things to you, and you feel like jumping off the bridge. But um, uh, so, but but we. But the, I guess the point is that we're investing all the time because we are big and we're able to do that. Luckily, and we're investing all the time in trying to find new and different ways. But some of what you're saying that. is speaking to the fact that actually they are in existence. These prevailing narratives. That's the thing. And and it's not just our job no, to change exactly. them as well. It's every single one of us. Whether you're doing yeah. all of us. Mm. and all of you, it doesn't matter whether, if you're a content creator or collaborator or working in mainstream or digital or alternative or NGO, actually those are the, we have to ask ourselves those critical questions all the time. Are we doing more harm or are we managing to tell the story? And, and they, sometimes they're little things. And also compared to a media house, you know, a media organisation, mm. the amount of cut through we have is so minuscule compared to Channel 4 or the BBC mm. or anything and when the prevailing narrative is, some, is, is so dominant mm. um, trying to challenge that narrative there, is, there are certain audiences and demographics you can do that to mm. um, but yeah it makes it very hard, it doesn't mean we're not trying to do it yeah. but it makes yeah. it 
different. No, I was just going to say it's it's, very, it's one of these things that it's quite can be quite hard to demonstrate the sort of impact and get. But mm. with the um, dementia project, there was a university which did a piece of research around it, and they found that in terms of in terms of trust, in terms of trust in the story, the fact that they were listening directly to people with mm. dementia as experts in their own experience, um, rather than through uh, through a kind of Mediator. Um, a mediator were it made them much more kind of trusting and mm. empathetic um, with the story and you know they were like someone with dementia is telling me so that's really important and um, the other thing I was going to say is um, there's been some work done and I'm not won't speak about because I'm not a kind of expert in it but um, around I think a thing called the narrative project which I think mm. was funded by Gates and mm -hmm. which actually breaks down s sort of segments of audiences really worth looking into because mm. actually what a lot of research has shown some some other research has contradicted it is that it's not negative pictures and not kind of famine and not you know distress which actually work best with many audiences in the UK and that they, they found that actually um, yeah different different types of stories work both in terms of fundraising and in fact the some of the research is that the, com bond. the yeah. compassion yeah. fatigue is worse when there's a sort of a Oh my God, this is so awful. I just don't know as a viewer what to, what do. to do with that. Whereas if it's got a flip in the tail, which is some sort of local agency, whereas, okay, here's a water project, but oh my God, these women are building water tanks. Okay, I can go with that. There's something that's happened. That seems to be, and from what I, the research I've heard, actually more motivating for people. It's very Although it's complicated. It's very nuanced right, in terms right, of, right. and uh, there are certain segments of society where that works, yeah. but there are very, very large portions where that doesn't. Does it, I think yeah. we right. need to remember that us in this room are probably not indicative yes. of the types of people which primarily are giving to organisations like mm -hmm. Save the Children, for example. Right. I think as well people want to, in, I guess this is true, slightly in um, of when it's sort of more pure journalistic storytelling as well. If it is a negative of a very difficult story, it's uh, leaving someone with a sense of, do they have a role in it? So I suppose for the DRTV, it's about making the person watching that ad or that piece of content understand what their role might be. And sometimes that ends up being quite simplistic when you're sort of explaining it to a UK public and that's one of the problems but um, I mean in some of the other sort of coverage of like the refugee crisis and so on people get that fatigue because they're then thinking oh well, nothing's changing and I don't have a role in it um, so it's interesting I don't really have a question around it. it's just um, no, I just ask lots of questions all the time. <laughs> can I also just yeah. say that I think um, we shouldn't underestimate the audiences, actually. Mm -hmm. I think what broadcasters, and whether it's NGO films, seem to forget that actually audiences are really sophisticated. Mm -hmm. If you, when, when any of my programs go out, I watch the Twitter feed, and it heartens me to think that the critics who wrote that little piece in The Guardian actually didn't get it, but those people on that Twitter feed are really getting it, and you get that feedback minute by minute, and you think, oh my God, they actually got what that was about. So I think mm. broadcasters and, you know, we have to push the boundaries. I think we have to keep pushing those boundaries and remember that the audience is not stupid anymore. Mm. They're actually very sophisticated, media savvy, especially, you know, as they said in the last um, session, David Lamy said, 
The young people, the millennials are with it all the way. They know what is true and what isn't true. They see through a lot. And I think the broadcasters, the people sitting in their kind of little ivory towers and living in lovely areas in North London or whatever, I think they need to get off that and realize that actually don't fucking patronize your audience. Excuse me. You know, because I think the audience is a lot more sophisticated. Um, I yeah. think that's a very good point. I think we have to wrap up now, but I think that is a very good point. Um, I just want to recap a few things, because we, we, we've talked a lot about different sectors, and I realise you know, people are really from the broad spectrum. We don't patronise our audiences. Our audiences are, are intelligent. They can read subtitles. <laughs> if they can watch Scandi Noir, you know, they can read subtitles. But we also don't patronise our contributors. Mm. We don't objectify them. We don't talk about them. We can use all of our skills in any capacity to help facilitate them to elevate their stories. And there's nothing wrong with seeing people who are not from our, the us part. There's nothing wrong with seeing the them part in positions of authority. Actually, there are experts. If you're making a film on malaria, why do we always go to the London um, tropical whatever? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> they are brilliant, but there are real experts all over places that are dealing with malaria. We have to just work harder. And we have to ask ourselves, every decision, who's walking into the frame? Are we filming from up to down? Are we, you know, we are people versed in film language. That's most of us, right? It's powerful. We, you know, it's easy to write a chirpy little script. It can get you out of almost any problem. But that becomes your dominant character. If you're going to use commentary, which I'm a big fan of in some contexts, think about it. Is it a supportive character? Or is it the one that's just, you know, talking over everybody. A thousand little trims can shift the power base of a film from somebody being a sort of a subject to being an agent, from somebody having a voice of authority or being talked over. These are the responsibilities, small decisions to big decisions, which is which story are you pitching? Are you pitching, you know, Zuma is and the crisis in South Africa, or are you pitching the amazing stories that are going on in civil society in South Africa, which actually would make us make much better understanding of, 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 of the crisis that it's going through right now. Whatever it is, wherever you are, we need to think very, very carefully about the little decisions and the big decisions. We have no rights. It's not our right to go out and talk about other people. We have huge responsibilities. We need to go out and be very sensitive to local circumstances, local people, local voices. And whether it's process or portrayal, of which these wonderful people are doing tremendous things, let's go and do good, but do no harm. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the One World Media Podcast. That was episode two, Authentic Storytelling. To find out more about what we do, go to oneworldmedia.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at 1WM.